Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey, and welcome back to the podcast. This week I'm joined by Ryan Boyer of uh, the fine state of Michigan here in these United States. Ryan is the uh, turkey biologist for Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan, working for the National Wild Turkey Federation. I had the great pleasure and privilege of getting to spend a few days, I mean, I was going to say hunting with Ryan, but... uh, the hunt actually went so quickly. I don't know that I could say that I spent that many days hunting with him. But uh, we hung out, uh, drank a little bit of whiskey, uh, talked a whole bunch about turkeys for two, three days, something like that. Uh, just a couple weeks here ago, uh, I was up in Michigan helping out on a project that's been in the works for, uh, I guess, the last year or so, uh, a partnership between NWTF and Sitka Gear. And I got the opportunity to go up there and finish up my turkey tour uh, with an eastern uh, turkey variety. And man, it was a super cool, fun hunt. Ryan's a wealth of knowledge. I mean, this is, you want to nerd out on birds and you want to nerd out on turkeys. This is the guy to talk to. Uh, he's super passionate about what he does. Uh, I think he's a great representative for the organization that he works for. And uh, man, he schooled me a lot too on. Uh, hockey you know we're up there so far north we're almost in Canada and listening to some of these guys talk about hockey it was like a totally different language and uh, a culture I knew uh, knew or know very little about so that was fun too we talk uh, we get a cool scientific breakdown about why fighting and hockey is a a good and appropriate thing from a biologist but uh yeah this one's going to be a deep dive on turkeys and a few other fun things but please enjoy this conversation with Ryan Boyer. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. This week I am in Northern Michigan. I've been on a hunt slash kind of a film shooting project with Sitka gear in conjunction with NWTF. And man, it's been an absolute blast. I it was just kind of like a magical, serendipitous thing. I sat in traffic in the van for a long, long time driving up here from uh, from Central Arkansas, and you know, before six o'clock in the morning, I had a my first Eastern gobbler. So uh, the man who made that possible is joining me today. This is Ryan Boyer. He's a district biologist for uh, covering Ohio, Michigan, and Indiana, uh, working for the NWTF. And uh, shoot, we'll jump right to it, man. Like, you know, I'm saying NWTF, like that's a very known acronym and like the hunting community. But man, maybe just like introduce yourself a little bit, what you do, like maybe say what NWTF is. And we'll talk about this super rad, you know, last three days. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm excited to be here. Happy to be chatting with you, Jonathan. I've certainly had a blast here these last few days getting to know you. And um, yeah, so my role is I work for the NWTF, which is the acronym for the National Wild Turkey Federation. Uh, they're a conservation organization, NGO, um, non-for-profit, but get grassroots-based, um, which means we're, we're volunteer-driven. Um, we've got memberships all across the country, local chapters that help, uh, you know, as a, as a fundraising mechanism to help fund our mission. And uh, the Na- National Wild Turkey Federation is, was founded in 1973 um, down in South Carolina and um, has, has grown tremendously since then. Um, we are, we're dedicated to the conservation of the wild turkey, but also the preservation of our hunting heritage too. And so uh, my role as a district biologist for Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio is to be good stewards of the dollars that we're raising um, through our grassroots efforts, through philanthropic giving, major donors or corporations that give us funding that they believe in our mission, they believe in the work that we're doing. Um, and so I'll, I'll find opportunities to take those dollars and that financial support and and leverage it against grants and agreements to um, influence and, and do work on the ground that we know based on you know our objectives and the best available science what's going to be most impactful for wild turkeys within my district in those three states and so i've been with the turkey federation now for uh, coming up on nine years um i've I've enjoyed it um every single day um the the mission is what what kind of pulled me in being a two-phase um you know, our, our two-prong mission, having not only the conservation aspect of it, but tying in um, the importance of hunting from from a conservation funding model. I think it's uh, you know it's something that that some folks are aware of, but but maybe some not as much. So. Um, I, I feel really fortunate in terms of the position that I have, the people that I get to work with, the volunteers, the members, the folks, the lifeblood of the organization um, makes makes my job exciting, makes it interesting. Um, there's a lot of variability in my job. I'll, I'll get opportunities to to see projects from you know the initial, the thought, the idea, uh, working with state, federal agencies, tribes, NGOs, private organizations, uh, land conservancies, and you name it. The list goes on and on and you know, I feel like we're, we're blessed as an organization in many ways, having the the wild turkey as our focal species, because, you know, they're, they're largely a generalist and they, they occupy a lot of different habitat types. So we can, uh, we can still facilitate and prioritize our work that we know that we need to do to be most impactful for wild turkeys. And at the same time, there's so much overlap with what we do and what other people's priorities are, other organizations. So, um, I mean, you're basically saying that What's good for wild turkeys is good for lots of other critters. So uh, other upland species, white-tailed deer, bear, porcupine. You guys got porcupines up here. Yeah. Like, I got to see my first real porcupines. Uh, like all of, all of those species are benefiting when uh, habitat is put in place or preserved that's doing good stuff for turkeys too. Yeah. Yeah. You're spot on. Um, and that's, that's the beautiful thing, you know, especially non-game species. We can, we can make so many ties to that. Um, Eastern whippoorwills, redheaded woodpeckers, uh, monarch butterflies, the, the federally endangered carner blue butterfly, which is, you know, one of the focal species of the Savannah restoration work that we've been doing that you and I've been, been looking at and hunting on here the last couple of days. And, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, there's the wildlife aspect of it, which is, is, which is amazing and the results and the impacts for game species, which, you know, hunters and, and a large part of our membership is, uh, you know, deeply drawn to those impacts and, and the benefits and obviously our priority being wild turkeys, but because there's overlap, 
uh, we can we can work with several different groups and several different interests and then you know you couple that with the the economic impacts that is we're improving we're enhancing and restoring and protecting um, different acres different habitats and, and creating additional access by helping state and federal agencies acquire land and open up opportunities for people to to recreate on or to, to hunt on um, and so that you know that aspect of it just provides so many different benefits for for the public and and multiple different user groups um, and then there's an economic impact with that too as well you know drawing people into these areas coming in and spending time in hotels and uh, spending money in restaurants and and they're they're going and using these areas and enjoying the the results and reaping the benefits of what what we're working hard to, d- to deliver on and so it's uh it's really impactful in so many ways and that's that's a big part of the reason i love what i'm, I'm doing here Man, I'd like to kind of describe, like, I've been super lucky, you know, the last month or so I've been bebopping around and I've seen like all these varied terrains, right? And exactly what you're speaking to, like the turkey being kind of a generalist. And so, you know, like you can find them in agricultural fields, you know, I was like in national forest and Oregon, uh, like mostly juniper and pines, you know, I've, um, I've been in like wine country and uh, on the West Coast. I've been in the man. I got a turkey like on a little peninsula on the Willamette River, uh, and then this this one took place in like you're talking about these oak savannas. Uh, so it's like the end of May right now. Uh, everything's in like the word kept getting used lush, like just electric green. Really like just what you think about. I th- I think kind of like what most people think about when they think of hunting, like they're thinking about this stuff, right? Uh, like you just expect some dude with like a red and black plaid shirt, you know, to like come driving down in a Packer with a, with like a 12 point buck tied to the front, right? It's just like very classic Eastern deciduous forest stuff. But you know, I, where I live, it's Eastern deciduous forest, but, but different, right? You've got, yeah. you've got like all these Aspens, like we don't have Aspens. I mean, we're getting close to Canada here, mm-hmm. totally different latitude. Uh, I mean, some of the, uh, there was another guy that was hunting this week and I mean, he, he had a coyote coming on him, a uh, black bear walk 60, 60 feet behind him. I mean, these are like really cool, like pretty, I don't know, kind of like just classic American feeling woods. Um, but man, describe like the Oak Savannah a little bit. Cause that's specifically some of these restoration projects that, uh, y'all have been working on and that sick has been helping out with, uh, which is kind of how I got up here too. So, uh, yeah, maybe kind of like describe that for folks so they can maybe have a better idea of what we're talking about. Yeah. So, um, Oak Savannahs are a really, really unique ecosystem type they're uh, highly imperiled um, compared from if you if you look back based on the the information and the data we have prehistoric settlement pre-european settlement to where we are today we've lost about 99.9 percent of the oak savannas that existed on the landscape prior to settlement to where we are now so where what was their like original range um so Oak savannas are essentially on they're a transitional habitat between um, you know you more open prairies grassland type habitat as the moisture gradient shifts into um, you know more more forested areas it's that it's that transition that in between where you've got a balance of you know overstory oaks primarily your white oak species as we're as we're getting into some of the oak savannas that we were on um, here on these sites you know, we've got northern red oak we've got white oak species um, we do have some some white pines which you saw in some of these areas too 
and and it fades into further northern Michigan where we've got some more oak pine barrens uh, as a component of these savannas. But they're they're really uh, you know, thinking about it in a more general term, you know, roughly, you know, 50% overstory composition of these larger trees in these areas um, that are open enough and these canopies are open enough to let sunlight down to the ground uh, and allow those native grasses and wildflowers to res- respond um, and be viable in the understory and still uh, maintaining like a shrub component of the desirable species, the native species in that area. So, you know, when we're managing for these sites, you know, 50% overstory is is a rough average right we we, we're talking in terms of gradients and it's all site specific but it could range from you know 20 percent canopy covers all the way up to like 80 percent for instance and so um you know but primarily having that herbaceous component where you've got those native grasses and forbs that we're shooting for in these instances and these oak savannas make a really unique habitat type that really quite frankly a lot of wildlife species benefit from and a lot of these these species utilize these types of habitats for various aspects of their life cycle needs um they they, you know that forb response having these wildflowers in the understory it attracts insects right and this time of the year um for hens specifically young poults that are just hatching which we we saw a hen with five poults here this afternoon in one of our savannah openings um which is it's that's like the the pinnacle, right? The mm-hmm. the the ultimate outcome of what and what we're shooting for. You know, in my mind, like that's that's why we're doing this work is to try and put more turkeys back on the ground to give them that the highest quality brood rearing habitat we can that attracts an abundance of insects. It's got high levels of diversity, high levels of different structure so that these young poults can navigate through there, hens can maintain good visibility, and then adjacent to areas that per- provide also some quality nesting habitat too for those hens in this time of the year. So, you know, really... I mean, let, let me just interject there real quick. Yeah. Cause we talked about this yesterday when we were walking through the burn. Like, like all habitat is not created equal, right? So you've got these poults, you know, that's a baby turkey, and... It needs cover. Needs, I mean, because everything's trying to eat the turkey in the woods, right? You've yeah. got hawks and owls and coyotes and any number of things, right? Especially these small little vulnerable versions of them. So they need to be able to have kind of cover from ahead, hide basically, but they still need to be able to move through those grasses and forbs and like the wildflowers and stuff. So like it can't be so tight that they can't move, but it's got to provide enough cover. It also has to be low enough that a hen turkey can see over the top of it and like keep an eye out. Uh, And then, you know, you're saying then they need to be able to move over into thicker stuff where they can, uh, where they can uh, like roost up eventually after a couple of weeks when they get big enough to fly up there. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. You were talking about how, like these wildflowers and these bunch grasses and all this habitat in these savanna areas, how, how they facilitate uh, invertebrate and insect growth. Right. And like how much of a percentage of the, of the diet for those pults that that makes up, right? Like that protein rich food, that's going to help them grow quickly so they can get to the point that, because you said like once they get to like 14 days and they can roost up in a tree, uh, they, yeah, their survivability yeah, goes up way up. Yeah, ex- almost exponentially. And it's incredible. And so that's that's the primary driver and the, the point there that we're we're trying to promote, you know, largely throughout most of the country is improving 
the brood habitat in those areas, trying to work with our, with, with our partners to implement that, to provide that diversity. And, and you're absolutely correct. You know, there are instances where, you know, some of the, the native grasses that can have a tendency to take a stand over or a lack of active management and use of prescribed fire, for instance, those, those stands will transition over time. And some of those grasses have a tendency to kind of continue to take over and crowd out some of those forbs. And when that happens, you know, those young poults can't traverse that as easily. Uh, so it makes it more challenging for them to actually utilize that. And what at one point it may have been maintained in a more desirable condition for poults, uh, eventually without the, the correct management being taken place, it, it makes it more of a challenge. And so these savannas we're managing for, you know, they, they're on the landscape in a gradient and they were historically there, you know, based on these, these fire regimes, the, the moisture gradient. And yeah, you're absolutely correct in terms of had an opportunity to showcase some sites with you in the last couple of days. And, you know, you would see pockets and, and lowlands where, you know, it's, it's young forest, it's Aspen and there's the openings next to it. So we're, you know, we're, we're, treating and we're looking at this at a larger scale and helping enhance and restore those adjacent habitats as well to provide opportunities for other species other game species specifically like rough grouse and american woodcock for instance that are young forest dependent golden wing warblers uh, a great example of a, a you know a key species a species of concern um, throughout the upper midwest and the northeast that you know the work that we're doing for wild turkeys that may be promoting adequate nesting habitat for those hens are going to benefit those other species and, and the oaks, the oak component of the savannas you know, are, are an incredibly important mast producer for wild turkeys in terms of their buildup um, in the fall, especially, excuse me, um, for being able to consume those and build up the fat reserves that they need, especially in this part of the country, in this part of the world where uh, winter conditions and winter severity can, can be challenging. So if we can do what we can to promote, you know, the health of our, our oak forests, our oak ecosystems, our oak savannas to produce quality mass for those birds in the fall, they have higher likelihood of survivability during the winter months and going into the breeding season in better condition. And then we're maintaining and promoting that diversity with forbs and grasses so that these, these hens have uh, a better chance if they're successfully able to, um, you know, raise a, raise a brood in those and get them to these sites to be able to, um, you know, make up their diet, you know, approximately 90% of that hen's diet during, during the breeding season and leading up to that is, is made up of, of insects from the protein perspective. They, they utilize that and help with, with the, the formation and development of eggs. And then the, the young poults of course need that, like you said, to put on that size, um, and help their chances of, of making it past that, that first two week window. That's when they're the most vulnerable to, um, depredation at that point and risk of predators is before they, they can, they can fledge and at least get up on some low-hanging branches and, and get up out of the way because they're a pretty easy target. Like you said, there's a lot of things out there that uh, want to eat eat eggs, hens, when they're vulnerable, when they're actively incubating and spending a lot of time in one specific location. It increases their level of vulnerability, uh, especially as it progresses throughout the incubation period. Man, you, there's like there's so many different questions I wanted to ask, and I'm, I'm going to try to remember some of them because uh, I – they were all like, ooh, that'd be a good question to ask. Uh, I've put too much buildup on it now. <clears throat> um, that last point you just made, and you're talking about all the different things that want to eat turkeys, right? Yeah. So we've been talking about this the last couple of days. So there is a, there's kind of a push and a movement now with this idea of predator control, right? 
largely yotes and or you know coyotes and and raccoons um and you know people talk about like every time you know every dead raccoon is like a, a saved turkey poult or something uh and you know and often like kind of in a weird like demonizing way that's i don't think is appreciative of just like all the natural uh, cycles that are in play here with different species uh but we do have some stuff that's kind of like weird and out of whack a bit right so like there as i understand it there's more raccoons now than there's ever been because they they are so adaptable and they're so successful with living on these like human wild interfaces right they can live in cities and eat trash out of big blue dumpsters you know out here in the woods man they're you know they're uh, using those little dexterous fingers and they're finding crawdads and you guys got crawdads up here yes sir yeah crawdads and snails and mussels and you know blackberries and y'all have blueberries and stuff like just anything right so man talk to me about that because i mean we basically were talking about it uh just to lead into it you know the the amount of predator trapping that would have to take place would be on a scale that's really not doable these days because there's no economic incentive for people to you know sell furs or very little anyway uh, and it doesn't take into account like black rat snakes, right? Or, uh, great horned owls or barred owls or hawks and all these other things. So man, yeah, what just, that's the lead in. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. You're spot on Jonathan. Yeah. That's a, that's a, it's a pretty common topic. It's something that I get asked quite frequently in terms of the role that predator management can play in terms of, you know, helping, uh, you know, promote you know reproductive success of wild turkeys and, and overall survivability and and as you said there's there's a lot of things out there that, that want to you know eat either the hen eat, you know take the eggs eat the poults um and especially during the breeding season so that the importance of those those vital rates and things that we can do to maybe to impact that or offset those impacts are certainly important considerations and so you know some of the some of the challenges with with predator management as you mentioned is that because there's a whole host of different types of you know, aerial and mammalian predators, for instance, that can impact those vital rates, um, you know, you can't effectively remove all of them, all of those those different species that, are, that could have impacts to, to wild turkeys during the breeding season. And to be a, in order to be effective at doing it uh, from a population level, um, you know, it would be extremely, extremely challenging to be able to replicate that and place a concerted effort on on predator management, you know, across the scale to, um, to see the types of impacts and the effects from a population level scale. And especially given the, the amount of, you know, time and money and resources. And as you mentioned, you know, some of the challenges with the fur market, for instance, and, and quite frankly, just seeing the, you know, for a while there, we were seeing, you know, declines in hunter numbers. Um, and I, I don't have the numbers uh, specifically in terms of hunting and trapping, but that just seems like more so that lifestyle, the number of people that are introduced and, and, uh, and maybe been exposed to, to trapping, for instance. Oh, um, I mean, it, definitely trapping, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not near, near what it was in terms of, you know, having that cultural impact. And well, just real quick too, yeah. like, I think what a lot of folks You'll, you'll hear about these good old days of trapping, which like really was kind of the seventies, uh, you know, in the seventies. So normally a Northern pelt, a Northern fur is going to have a higher market value than a Southern one because animals up North are going to have thicker kind of like, you know, more desirous coats. Right. In the seventies, there was a period where that was kind of reversed because of, 
the markets that we're buying fur. And so like a southern raccoon, uh, like a green pelt, or say not even a green one, I think probably one that's was stretched and dried. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you'd be looking at prices in the 70s of $35, $40, $45, you know? Yeah. Uh, translate that into money now. I mean, that's got to be 150 bucks, 200 bucks, something. Like if I got $200 for a raccoon pelt, all I would do is trap raccoons. And there was tons and tons of people all across the country that were doing that, right? Which really uh, kept those populations in check. We're probably never going to, you're probably never going to get $200 for a raccoon pelt, right? Sure. So you're, and it, man, trapping is a ton of work. Yes. And it's a ton of work after you get the animal, right? Uh, there's not a ton of incentive for people no. to, to do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's a, a really big aspect of it. They, you know, don't get me wrong. And I, I, I make sure that I, I try and reemphasize certainly, you know, I, I support hunting and trapping we as a national wild turkey federation support hunting and trapping you know when when done legally and and under the you know the regulations and the guidelines set forth by by the state agencies um and so you know in in certain cases certainly um you know those those are instances where there has been studies that have been done over multiple different species including ground nesting birds um where you know concerted efforts in in more localized scales is, is is impactful it helps, you know, it can, can increase nest success in certain instances. Um, you know, it has been shown to offset, um, you know, levels of survival for different, different bird species in certain instances. And, but, you know, I, I, uh, I, there was a research study that was done in the prairie pothole region respective to waterfowl. I believe it was Courtney Amundsen, I may have, um, butchered her name there a little bit, but, uh, she had essentially gone out and assessed, uh, did a cost benefit analysis on concerted, you know, specific to mammalian trapping efforts in the prairie pothole region to see at the time, I believe it was like 2012, the publication um, had come out. Um, so she had done multiple study sites within the prairie pothole region. And ultimately, um, the, you know, the conclusion was that the, the trapping, um, you know, it done at the scale and as intensely as it was done was showing to impact some of those vital rates and ultimately putting more ducks on the landscape. But at the cost to do that, to replicate for each bird added to that fall flight for that year was somewhere around like 21 dollars per bird oh, so really? if you extrapolate that to a population level <laughs> landscape level scale where we're talking you know our state agencies are faced with a challenge of managing you know, these species game species for instance at a population level and so you know talking about that at that time like you said after inflation you account for that is when we look at that from a cost benefit analysis um, and you're looking at other you know, issues specific to density dependence and, and other opportunities, changes in the landscape, like you said, these shifts um, and loss of habitat or creating these, these, these corridors by, you know, removing uh, different types of habitats, changes in fence rows, loss of CRP um, species like raccoons have been extremely prolific and have benefited from a lot of these changes. And so, um, you know, the, the impacts to a lot of these changes, the, uh, um, the response of the, the expansion of non-native and invasive species, for instance, you know, bush honeysuckle, autumn olive, um, Cerecia lespedesia, spotted knapweed, reed canary grass. Like I could go on and on and down the line and, you know, we could talk about these regionally specific out west cheat grass. Uh, all of these things are, are having a, a negative impact overall on the health of these ecosystems. And, you know, it's, it's not unreasonable to think, to hypothesize that these are having negative impacts on a lot of other species as well. So but we, we feel 
um, collectively as an organization, we're going to continue to lean on our partners, our state agencies, our technical representatives, which are the state um, state agency officials, the, the turkey biologists in each of the respective states make up a technical committee um, that, that we work hand in glove with. They provide recommendations, updates, um, communicate with us as an organization in terms of uh, what's going on, proposed ch- changes in regulations, um, areas we might be able to help facilitate and communicate with membership, any concerns that they f- they foresee or, or and, and or vice versa. So we work really closely with the state agencies to try and, you know, I- identify some of the issues and some of the challenges that they face. And so certainly from, you know, tying that all back into, um, you know, being able to replicate something like predator management, um, you know, it's by all means, you know, if you've got opportunities to do it um, and, and do it legally and partake in it, you know, it's just certainly it's a it's an important part of our heritage and, um, you know, cherish that and do that by all means. But uh, sometimes, you know, unfairly, um, I think like coyotes, for instance, they, they get a lot of the blame. They get the bad rap. Uh, a lot of folks associate, you know, declines in bird numbers. They want to be able to put, uh, I feel anyway, their finger on maybe one thing that's leading to, you know, some of these in certain areas, more precipitous declines and estimated turkey populations and declines in turkey harvest in a lot of states. And in the Southeast, we're seeing it in the Northeast. Um, There's parts of of the Midwest, for instance, and, um, and in the Plains region where we're, we're seeing declines in harvest and and estimated populations. So folks, I think are, are, uh, are struggling with it. You know, post restoration, we hit that, we hit that peak. We had high reproductive rates. They were still expanding into suitable habitats. Um, and harvest was relatively high. And then since then, in a lot of states, it's come off that peak. Uh, it's stabilized in some states. And then um, and some states are seeing seeing declines from that coming down and, and largely declines in production, too. Estimates in terms of uh, reproductive rates and, and pulp per hen ratios based on brood surveys um, have gone down. And so we're it's, it's a multifaceted, multi-prong um, issue in terms of some of these declines. And so we're, we're working... Uh, every day with our partners. We're working with uh, Dr. Mike Chamberlain, Dr. Brett Collier, um, just to name a few, and and multiple different state agencies and universities and researchers. Uh, There's a lot of brilliant minds that I have the opportunity to try and glean information from and learn from that know far more, you know, about the wild turkey um, than myself. So it's, it's, it's interesting to, um, to hear from those folks and to be able to work from those folks and, and, and read up on their research and the results of their publications. And for instance, in two weeks, we'll be down in uh, Asheville, North Carolina at the national wild Turkey symposium. And so that's a, that's a, that's a meeting of the minds, all of the greatest minds in North America specific to doing research on wild turkeys will be there convening um, and providing updates and presentations on their research and their findings. And so um, there's a lot of interest right now. And there's a lot of concern regarding some of these declines. And um, yes, per, certainly uh, the the change in the composition, the change in land use, and and how how things are structured, and the shift in terms of predators, types of predators, and their abundance, non-native invasive species, um, you know, production declines. Um, there's some concerns or needs uh, that have been identified in terms of looking at regulations and timing of harvest. Uh, wondering uh, if potentially we're removing too many birds in the springtime uh, prior to when that median nest incubation date is. So that was one of the, you know, original assumptions that, um, you know, that removing males during the breeding season uh, in the spring for wild turkeys 
is is not likely to have an impact or or reduce populations if it's if you remove less than 30 percent of the overall estimated populations through harvest that spring as long as you know most of your hens are actively incubating on the nest so we they wanted to set regulations and state agencies desired to try and set their start date as close to that median nest incubation date as possible to help offset those those concerns and the thought was that the removal of those males during the spring season would be offset by the number of young recruited from those hens that are that are laying eggs that are incubating and the poults that are reared and make it to that that first year age class and then into adulthood that following year to offset those those differences but um you know i think collectively we're we're recognizing that the research community, scientists, biologists like myself and, and others are recognizing that, you know, some of that data, some of that research um, is likely outdated. Uh, a lot of that information and the, the best available data that we have, especially in, in certain states, is specific to pre-restoration and restoration phases where, like I said, you know, reproductive rates were high. They were still, you know, dispersing, um, you know, harvest and interest, hunter participation, all of that, that sort of thing had changed, um, and has shifted. And, and because each of these states are unique, it, uh, um, it provides additional, additional challenges and, uh, certainly something we as an organization take are taking very seriously. Um, and we're trying to assist with providing funding and research, uh, working with state agencies to better understand maybe how, uh, regulations can be adjusted. At the same time, understanding you know the importance of conservation funding as a model, and trying to maximize hunting hunting opportunity where it makes sense, as long as we're not placing the resource at risk. Ultimately, that's you know that's our greatest concern in terms of the, the future and the health of the wild turkey. Um, man, this is what I keep thinking about because you know, like the last couple of years, I've just kind of become super enamored with these birds. Uh, I was telling my buddy on the phone today that hunting turkeys is like everything all the magical like romantic stuff i talk about with waterfowling like you have these beautiful iridescent birds you've got this communication factor you've got uh i don't know you know man like you can there's like this weird tactile thing to hunt them like you can feel their gobbles in your chest you know what i mean when they're all that stuff, man. It's like, yeah. it like carries through the ground on you. Uh, and the way they like fluff up. I mean, it's, it's like nothing else. Uh, that head, the way that head changes colors, it's, it's like a barbershop pole, but, uh, <laughs> man, it really is kind of been sending me down this. I mean, I have more questions than I could ask you in the length. You know, I mean, I could talk to you like for hours and hours and hours about it. Uh, and I've been bugging you about stuff, but I'm also like really, I'm really kind of, struck by the fact that you know this is a bird that's only in north america right uh you know if you if you talk about i guess what people used to call like the old world right like where european colonization came from like they had never seen this animal before right and so then they come over here right they're you know so like i guess i wonder the historic range of these turkeys like i've been hunting turkeys in oregon and like historically they weren't that's not a place they really were ever at, right? And now you've had, like, with back in the day with a lot of these uh, trapping efforts and moving stuff around, you've got uh, species of turks, subspecies of turkeys in the West that weren't originally there. Uh, I wonder, you know, when when the pilgrims came, the like, Quaker-out-looking people came with, like, the shiny buckles on their boots, <laughs> what 
what did turkeys look like in North America? Yeah, so um, there there are some you know some maps available in terms of the historical uh, extent in terms of where where you would find these birds and you know speaking specifically to um, you know the the Midwest and yeah, you know looking at things leading up to the early 1900s, you know, un- unregulated market hunting um, and the exhaustion of multiple resources, wild turkeys being one, you know, extirpated from, from many states. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to, uh, I think for, for me really to fathom what, what it would have looked like at that point and, and what the relative abundance um, of those birds in those areas would be. And, and just seeing, knowing how much of a transition, you know, these environments, these ecosystems have had and the impacts that, that we have, if humans have had, um, relative to, you know, European settlement, um, certainly. Do you it, think there were more, I mean, cause I've heard that there's more turkeys now than there were 300 years ago. Is that, is that the case or yeah. just more widely distributed or what? Yeah. More widely distributed. Certainly. I, and I think there's, you know, it's probably hard to accurately assess it, but most recently, I think somewhere around 6.4, 6.7 million turkeys, um, you know, throughout the United States was the last, you know, overall estimate. Uh, certainly we're seeing declines, I believe since 2004 to 2020, we've seen approximately a 16% decline in populations. Wow. Um, so, you know, that, that's concerning, but during the, you know, the restoration phase speaking, um, in my backyard here in Michigan specifically, you know, historically based on our best available knowledge, if you drew a line from the East side by the thumb, uh, from Bay city all the way across slightly on a di- diagonal down to what is, is Muskegon. And we're just, just North. We're flirting with where that line of, you know, the historical extent and where you would, where you would find birds in that, that gradient, that transition where, where we're predominantly more, more savannas, a mixture of, of open lands and, and hardwood forests, um, moving into Northern Michigan, it was predominantly, you know, older age class of mature hardwoods and pine forests. Um, and especially as you get into the UP, we didn't, we didn't have wild turkeys there. Um, but we've seen significant shifts we've seen with, you know, the changes in land use development, people settling, you know, turkeys thrive when they have that balance of, of open land, as well as, you know, hardwoods and in Northern parts of, uh, you know, their, their range, certainly having, you know, conifers as a, as a thermal component for, for winter survival and being able to get out of the wind and even parts out West, you know, and Jason, Jason Merriam's like you and I were talking about, you know, Ponderosa pines, um, they, they play an important role. So, uh, it's really kind of hard to, for me to fathom certainly what, you know, what the extent of the habitat looked like. And so when, you know, we were, we were working and helping state agencies with, with the restoration trap and transfer efforts, you know, helping them restore them to suitable habitat types. And initially when the trap and transfer era started here in Michigan, you know, it was thought that, um, turkeys needed just large blocks of contiguous old growth or older age class, uh, hardwood forests, um, with no real, not no real consideration for the openings component of that. And largely because that when 
you know, some of the few available turkeys that were still in areas were found in areas that had a lot of adequate cover. That's where people saw them. So they assumed that that's what they needed and they found They were left they, in like the thickest, hardest yeah, to get at places. Yeah, yeah. The, the wiliest birds were able to get in those areas. And so when people would see them, that's where they would see them. So they, you know, it was a large assumption made that that's, that's the type of habitat that they need. So that's where, you know, the agencies said, okay, well, we're going to pick out these big blocks of forest and we're going to start start the trap and transfer efforts there and found that, you know, they shifted and started utilizing these areas that had a, had a, a mixture of the open lands and the hardwood forest. And, you know, so, um, you know, a lot of studies have looked at that in terms of, you know, how, how much forest does do wild turkeys need? And, um, you know, some studies that were done in Minnesota assessed that they were still using habitats with, you know, all the way down to a 15% composition of forest compared to, um, you know, 85% open lands in that example and then to the far extremes where you know they're utilizing habitats with as much as 90 95 percent forested cover but still thriving and and using more of those areas with that open land component and it's specifically you know in terms of you thinking about it like you're saying you're chasing birds and you're finding you know they they like they like open they don't they don't like thick they like being able to use uh, their eyesight for instance it's a it's a key component for them and survivability and escaping predators and certainly hens and and being able to escape in areas but also having that open land component with forbs and the grasses like we're trying to promote with savannas um, for that for that production component in that important aspect of their life cycle. So, so much has changed and these landscapes have changed so significantly. And, you know, for instance, up in the UP down, uh, um, in, um, you know, Delta Menominee counties over by you know, Escanaba in that area. Um, it's, it's relatively sheltered, stays a little bit warmer being that close to the lake. Doesn't get quite the snowfall levels and the depths that uh, the other parts of the UP have. And so in those, in that part of the UP specifically, you know, wild turkeys have been uh, restored to those areas and, and have done quite well. Um, and so certainly, you know, they're subjected to harsher winters and, and can be impacted by that certainly, um, as are birds in Northern Michigan, but, um, you know, it's, it, the landscape has changed so dramatically and these birds have overwhelmingly, I would say, adapted probably better than most people even would have projected. In some, ca in some cases, you know, we, we make it a point to emphasize that we want to maintain desirable levels of wild turkey populations. And when we say that, you, you know, the word desirable, uh, that, you know, having an abundance of wild turkeys in more urban areas may not be desirable, right? You know, that human wildlife interaction, that conflict component, if you've got birds roosted over your Mercedes, um, and there's droppings on your car every morning, or there's issues with a, with a bird chasing, the displaying and chasing, yeah, yeah, chasing your kid on the way to the school bus, um, it becomes more of a nuisance issue. And so, you know, we certainly, as an organization, as a conservation organization tied to that, we, we understand that we respect that, um, the state agencies have full authority, you know, over that. So, you know, collectively we'll funnel those, those calls and those instances and try and work with the landowners to say, okay, you know, figure out the root of the problem, why there's nuisance issues in those examples. But, um, yeah, it's certainly, uh, it's, it's a complex issue, but I would, I would give almost anything to be able to roll back in a time machine and take a look at what things were like when, when the folks showed up, uh, showed up here and pre-settlement, it would be, be cool. Dude. Yeah, man, it would be really, really cool. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of like the same idea of people think of elk as like mountain animals. They think of black bears as like mountain animals. Right. And that's just the ones that we couldn't get at. Yeah. You know, like, uh, like a black bear is, 
in a lot of places is a swamp animal. You know, like look at them in the Everglades or like the ones that were left in Arkansas. I think like in the 20s, they said there was like 50. Like Arkansas at one point was known as the Black Bear State. There was like 50 yeah. left down at like the White River, the bottom of the White River drainage there. You know, like just thick, nasty swamp stuff. Uh, or elk, you know, were largely plains animals. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, it's, you know, human beings have really short memories. And, of course, just what you know and what you see is how it's always been. Uh, it, it's it's hard to remember that we have to be a little bit more long-looking than that. Uh, man, I'm going to twist this a little bit because uh, I am interested in, uh, you know, you're, you're speaking so eloquently, uh, and you're a credit to the NWTF, man. You really are, dude. You, you, you're, you're speaking... You're doing you're doing like a good job professionally, but I want to actually want like another uh, take another offshoot here, which is like we were also having conversations where you still very eloquently described to me why fighting in hockey is like completely necessary for the sport uh, and really kind of like in a scientific <laughs> way. Right. Like uh, I was like a checks and balance system and stuff. Uh, but so, you know, you're from Michigan, right? Aren't you? You're from originally. Yeah. Right. Right. And you like grew up playing hockey and i mean you were talking about hockey on a level i didn't under i didn't even know it existed right yeah like the juniors and uh like this this back and forth that's going on like across the northern border here and like uh canadians beating up on uh american like high school <laughs> hockey kids and stuff uh man how did and then i heard you this like this morning man you were talking about like dental school and stuff so like how did you get how did you go from like being like you seem like you know michigan's favorite son Right, like playing hockey and Mighty Duck style bruising up folks. <laughs> How did you get from that to like working? I mean, like NWTF is like kind of thought of as one of the premier conservation organizations in the country. Like they move a ton of money around. They help uh, they help state agencies. They help private landowners. Uh, they're like buying land. They're moving birds. They're helping. I mean. It'd, it'd kind of be weird to think about like where the wild turkey would be right now without you know the last 50 years of the organization right so but how do you get from just busting up dudes on the ice to, to this <laughs> oh i don't know i don't know how many times i guess I, I busted up guys versus guys busted me up per se um I, I think it was probably lean more towards me getting busted up but i uh wait actually exp do you would you explain yeah. why you think that fighting is a necessary part of hockey yes it's it's a quintessential component of it because I mean, it can it can change the entire dynamic of, of the game um and in, in in certain cases it can you know similar to i guess uh, you know a skipper coming out of the the dugout in a baseball game and and sticking up for his team or they're down they need kicking dirt on the empire, kicking dirt yeah. and, and getting tossed sure. uh, or coach sticking up for his players and and lighting a fire underneath them and certainly you know there's within hockey there's there's so many different roles that each one of the players has on that team you know it, it lines one two three and four uh even specific to defensemen you know your left-handed right-handed shot what are your strengths uh, are you more of a power forward um, do you have the ability to clear guys out of the net um you, you know you speed your component um and, and certainly fighting um you know is a critical aspect in terms of you know setting forth a precedent, a precedent, a checks and balances. Certainly, you know, some of your, your more skilled, your star players, especially talking about it from a professional level, um, you know, they can, they can be taken 
out of the play. You can subdue them due to the, the physicality. That's, that's such a huge component of the game of hockey, which, you know, in hit hitting, um, the ability to be able to use your check, you know, you're checking your sticks, your body to be able to position yourself to move guys away. But it's, it can also be you're talking uh, about just some it, dudes beating the hell out of Wayne Gretzky. So he can't exactly. Dominate. Yeah. And so Wayne Gretzky is a, is a great example of somebody that, that, he had protection. He had guys that he, when he was traded, um, he negotiated bringing them along with him so that, that he was protected. Took his bruisers with him when he got a deal. Absolutely. Yeah. So you protect that, that skill player that you know is going to be, you know, your producer in terms of goals. So each, each one of your guys, you know, on those lines and, and, you know, overall, I think in the last 10 or 15 years, you know, we've seen a shift in, in a decline in terms of, um, you know, the use of, of hockey, especially in the professional leagues. But if you go back, even you know, as a young kid, I was watching guys like Ty Domi and Bob Probert, specifically huge wings fan uh, growing up here in Michigan. And, and the roles like, you know, those guys, Joey Kosher, um, Darren McCarty, for instance, like the, the grind lines, Chris Draper, some of those guys that just um, the, the physicality aspect that like you, you weren't going to go up there and, and take down Steve Eiserman. Like they, they wouldn't even let you get to him. Uh, that would change the entire dynamic of that game when, uh, you know, I believe it was in 1997, there was a you know, Wings Avalanche playoff game and Chris Draper was was boarded and was like hit, hit slightly from behind. Claude Lemieux put him down into the glass and smashed his whole face off of the um, off the edge of the glass there on the boards and just like the next day the cover of the free press was you know broken nose mangled fractured jaw stitches and stuff and um you know they uh the next time they met that following year it was um you, you could tell it was it was going to blows and they, they had set it up and um you still remember watching that and it was a, it was an all-out all-out brawl center ice the goaltenders went at it um wah and and vernon at the time and then it, it perpetuated and, and went forth in another game but you know the the fighting aspect of it and it's it's it, it's like an unwritten understood aspect of the game um it's not it's not anything it's not like a street fight right where there can it can be malicious it can be unregulated it's still um it's an unwritten rule it's an understanding it's almost like a a rite of passage in, in many cases, you know, some of the, the junior tryouts that I, I attended after playing high school before playing college hockey. Um, you know, that was, that was something that they wanted to see because fighting is such a, such a big component of that game and the structure that, you know, as you're going through these tryouts, the, the referees in many cases too, would, would set it up before they even drop the pluck puck. Like, Hey, you guys, you guys ready to go? going to drop it, shed the mitts and, and get after it. They want to see if, if it comes to it and, and you need to fight that, that you can handle yourself in that situation. This is wild, man. Yeah. This is absolutely wild. <laughs> I watched, I watched a guy get a, get his jaw broke and, and bust some teeth and certainly some, some guys that are at those trials where that's, that's solely, that's their role. Uh, on do those you teams. take when you do that? Do you take helmets off first, or you start punching each other in the head with helmets on? No, in most cases you leave it on. Um, uh, there's yeah, there's there's instances where yeah, guys you leave it on. And you you hit you hit a visor. You're wearing in juniors. You're allowed to wear a half shield um, to you know pr- protect your eyes a little bit, but it still exposes your nose, jaw, face, etc. Um, but landing blows on the top of helmets certainly. Um, I bet it's yeah. I bet it's awful, man. Yeah, especially if there's cracks uh, on those helmets or it's a little marred up. Uh, you can you can tear up your your fist pretty bad. But um, you know, I I'd only gotten into a couple fights and didn't didn't fare well. Um, lost a couple times. Um, got set up in one of those fights with a bigger guy, and uh, I knew that you know he had the reach on me and the size, just sheer power. So um, as soon as it 
as soon as he shed the mitts, I like, I went straight at him, went straight into his chest, just knowing that he's going to be swinging around me and whatever I can get, I'm going to try and, um, try and work him on the inside. And if I can get him down to the ice and the refs will pull me off and go from there. But, um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't a fighter. I didn't, um, I ended up deciding not to carry forth or push forth with playing juniors, uh, had an opportunity and a connection from my high school hockey coach, um, with his college hockey coach to get a, a preferred walk on out at a little division three school in, in Minnesota. And so I jumped out there, um, enjoyed it, met lifelong friends, my best friends. Um, and, uh, at the same time I had a, I had a passion for aviation actually. And they had a, a course out there with natural resources, aviation. So it, it, to me, it blended the best of both worlds. I always loved, I was infatuated with the outdoors, love hunting, love fishing, love trapping, uh, you name it, I, anything that I could do to be outside. And I credit my folks to that. My dad introduced me to hunting, but my mom was super, like super supportive. She took me rabbit hunting and, and things like that. And my dad had some good friends. Actually, my dad, didn't introduce me to turkey hunting. It was, uh, one of his best friends, uh, Tom Truesdale. And, uh, he, uh, he was ate up with it. And the guy just, he lived and breathed it. He, he, you know, every, every, everything early on that I had learned and things to do and mistakes to make and what not to do. I learned, I learned through him. And my dad was like, he pushed me off to an expert that knew it because my dad didn't grow up turkey hunting because we didn't we didn't have them. So when I was 12 years old and growing up, then finally we, we were starting to get birds around our place and had fun chasing them. So we jumped out, you know, fast forward, and I was I was out in Minnesota, and so I I looked at the natural resources aspect of it, and I wanted to fly, and um, it was too hard to to balance that schedule um, with uh, trying to find flight times and and uh, and still fit in practice and playing hockey. So I decided to, to look at uh, natural resources, law enforcement, took some law classes, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, but I had, I'd come to the realization after, you know, roughly a semester of that, that, um, the law enforcement aspect of it, the enforcement of it, um, as a whole, and, and they play a critical role in protecting our natural resources and educating people on the importance of, you know, being good stewards and, and being lawful. And, uh, we, we place a huge emphasis in the national wild turkey Federation. As a matter of fact, at our national conventions, we, we bring forth all of our state award winners and, and, and put them up for our national LEO of the year, um, and, and place great, great emphasis on the importance of law enforcement. But I didn't see that as my role in terms of how I could be most impactful. So I, there was an opportunity to again, shift in, into wildlife management. And that's where I found my niche and, and folks that were driven and cut from the same cloth. I felt like I was, um, certainly surrounded myself with a lot of people far smarter than myself. I think that's something I credit to, you know, my mentors growing up, hockey coaches, you know, having opportunities to be able to, to play with people at a higher level than myself and, um, study with people far smarter than myself and, you know, be around folks like you and just constantly trying to, to learn and associate myself with better people. I found that in that, um, you know, there was a, a threshold for a GPA. And so I had actually, you know, made the tough decision after in part halfway through my, uh, my junior year and, you know, battling you know, injuries and time. And, uh, just, uh, felt like it was time to, hang up the skates, um, focus on getting my degree and, and get things corrected and moving forward that with that. And so I loved it, fell in love with it, got my bachelor's from Minnesota Kirkston and, uh, natural resources, wildlife management, and then had an opportunity to uh, jump around. I worked for Colorado division of wildlife when they were still the division of wildlife, not 
Division of Wildlife and Parks as they are now. Um, did some waterfall research out there in the San Luis Valley um, at Russell Lakes. Met some wonderful people out there, including uh, I met one of the technicians I work for. He had done an internship with Ducks Unlimited. And uh, at the same time I was out there, I flew back home. Uh, and my wife had gotten into dental school at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And so I, uh, I flew back home. We got engaged at her white coat ceremony and then had the conversation, the realistic conversation, because in the wildlife field, you can travel around and do the traveling technician gig and you can see some amazing things. I got to see Canada lynx out there. I got to learn how to drive airboats and dip net, you know, birds in the middle of the night using spotlights off the airboat and, and banding birds and running funnel traps and, and deploying, uh, you know, transmitters on birds and, and doing telemetry work. I, and, and on the, on my free time, I was hiking mountains and finding sheds and, um, just, just living life and loving the mountains. But, um, you know, we, my wife and I now, my fiance, we made the agreement that, Hey, if I stick it out around Ann Arbor somewhere while she's in dental school for four years that we'll, you know, we'll figure it out afterwards. And she was willing to jump around and travel with me. And so it, you know, fortuitously, I had an opportunity, landed an internship with Ducks Unlimited as a GIS intern, uh, really loved it, loved the people, loved the organization, had an opportunity to um, work with them and their biologist as a, as a conservation uh, intern and technician, and then helped uh, some of the biologists there with some of their black duck research out in New Jersey, and had expressed to one of the, the PhD, the researchers there, uh, one of the scientists from uh, the, the Glaro office, the Great Lakes Atlantic region with DU, that uh, I wanted to go to graduate school. I wanted to do research. I wanted to get my master's degree, um, go through you know the peer review process, go through the publication process, improve my writing skills. Um, and uh, so found an opportunity at the time to work with... We're, with him uh, on a Great Lakes Mallard research study. And at the time, the, the director of that office for DU um, was Miss Becky Humphreys. And she was a past DNR director for the Michigan DNR. And uh, she, um, shortly before I had finished with my, uh, my master's work at Michigan State and my thesis defense, she had taken a position as a chief conservation officer for the Turkey Federation. So I, um, you know, I really, I still to this day look up to Becky, who's currently our CEO, and I had spoken with her and uh, following uh, wrapping up with a thesis, the defense, and um, there wasn't an opportunity for continuing work and working with DU at the time. Um, so, and she was, she was with the National Wild Turkey Federation and, and she had, had reached out and said, Hey, I'd, you know, I'd be happy to offer you a job for working for the Turkey Federation in Indiana and Michigan. And, um, so we, it would, it didn't even take much of a discussion. I, yeah, of course, like I dream I'm job. Like, yeah. yeah. I'm like, um, let me, let me, you know, I'll do my due diligence and, and talk with, with my wife, of course, but you know, we were gung ho. It allowed us to be, you know, able to, to stay at the home state, um, and do that. And I had the opportunity to, to be in this position and grow in this position and work with some wonderful people. And so, you know, through that connection, getting to know all these folks, um, and still maintain, you know, some really close relationships. Some of my best friends are biologists and staff for Ducks Unlimited. And, and, uh, you know, we, we collaborate and work with them on a lot of overlapping opportunities, doing some bottomland reforestation work, um, doing some prairie restoration work that's going to benefit, you know, upland nesting waterfall, as well as, you know, brood habitat for turkeys too. So, um, you know, it's, having those relationships, building those things and kind of finding that course. But I, I never knew, I'd never planned on, you know, being plugged in or, or I've, I've always since making that realization that, you know, aviation was going to have to be on hold and I wasn't going to go down the law enforcement route. 
that I could be more impactful with wildlife management. I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. I wanted to try and, you know, continue to hone my skills, develop my, my knowledge base and learn absolutely as much as I can. And I'm, I'm extremely grateful the opportunities that have presented themselves, the relationships I've made along the way, but it's still in this, in this job that I have, uh, I have to learn so many things. You have to be so well-versed on everything from contract agreements in terms of uh, political advocacy, um, conservation easements, land acquisitions, you know, developing contracts and agreements and, and understanding certificates of insurance for, for subcontractors and understanding the effects and the impacts of different different treatments and the different types of landscapes we work in. So there's so many different facets to, to the job and the position that I, I feel blessed that you know, I've had lots of opportunities, lots of wonderful mentors, lots of other conservation counterparts in the Turkey Federation where I can just, I can sit back and just listen, you know, keep, keep my mouth shut and both ears open and continue to grow in the position. So it's, it's been a joy ride. I've, I've loved every second of it, um, learning so much. And then I have opportunities to work with folks like you, Jonathan, and, and folks from Sika Gear and, and really just find new ways to, to communicate all the wonderful things that we're doing and, and we can do so much more through great partnerships like this, man. So it's been, it's been a joy ride. It's been a lot of fun. Dude. Yeah. And that film that, uh, they've been working on, on this deal, it's going to be super cool. Uh, I mean, it just, it really, it's, it just all worked out so well. Like we had like an amazing hunt like success like right off the bat like the kind of stuff that doesn't happen like you just i just know i'm in for some rough seasons but uh just like amazing success from the beginning all sorts of cool encounters got to do tons of fun stuff uh everybody's been rad and then being able to tell this whole story of like habitat restoration and uh you know like successfully getting a turkey and then like coming across like uh, a hen turkey and poults and like uh you know like critically endangered butterflies and like just everything working it it just like man it went really really red uh well yeah dude we're gonna have to stay in touch man i've got i mean we didn't talk about i've got like a million nerdy questions about just like turkey behavior and talking about calling and like we haven't even talked about like you know the reaping which is this huge thing right now yeah uh, but yeah we'll have to we'll have to visit again man i'll have to this is a cool state, man. Tons and tons of deer, man. There, I've seen more dead deer on the side of the road driving in Michigan than any place I've ever been at. Uh, cool woods. Uh, we were at this like cool deer camp that just like it. You know, it's like you just think there's gonna be like some gr Walter Matthau, like some grumpy old man sitting there. It's like all this old wood and cool little racks and just neat stuff, man. So, uh, yeah, dude. Well. Uh, yeah, you kicked ass this week, man. And uh I I love seriously still one of my favorite things. I love the way your mind works in this like scientific analysis of uh of fighting in hockey. It's it's fantastic. I think that you secretly you want to be like have like a big mustache, just eat bratwurst and <laughs> drink beer, just be like an old 80s bruiser, man. Uh Yeah, I you know, I I wasn't maybe it's similar to my my job, my position, I, I feel like I'm maybe a, a jack of many trades, not certainly not all, but not a outstanding in any one. You know, I had, I had good size and, and love the physicality aspect of the game. You know, I, I, I didn't fight that often. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and could find the net 
periodically. Um, and so it was just, yeah, it was a huge part of my life. I really enjoyed it. Um, learned a lot from the wins and the losses and the people you meet, you know, you know, the camaraderie, the things that, sure, that yeah. are character building, man. So, yeah, I've, I've, like you said, this, this trip, this, this filming, um, the relationships we've, we've made. And yeah, like you said, when, when the hunts come together, um, and be able to showcase everything that we're doing and, and being able to, to take a bird and have a successful harvest and then encounter, you know, that hen with five bolts, you know, and like, and hopefully that, you know, that they make it to, uh, to adulthood and survive and, you know, Hey, we, we took one off the landscape, but hopefully we put five more on just in, yeah. just in that small area that we'd seen. And we, we know we're, we're expanding the carnival blue butterfly and, and black bears and white tailed deer and, and all these other species too. So it's, I'm so, uh, so happy to be able to share that with you, man. And you are welcome back here anytime to come chase turkeys or deer or just hang out and we can go, uh, go check out party stores and yeah, party stores, anything. man. Well, I forgot about that. Party stores are like these it's only in Michigan. It's like these convenience stores and they like I bought a hunting license there and it's a, like a convenience store and a liquor store and you can buy like ribeye steaks and frozen chicken breasts. It's, it's a, everything you need for a party, right? That's right. Spot on. Grunt's brothers. Shout out to Grunt's brothers party stores. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, really appreciate it, man. I think we're going to go have a little, uh, uh, into the, into the week dinner. And then I'm on my way to, uh, Shanty Creek, uh, up in northern Michigan to do Drop Fest. But, uh, yeah, all right, man. Well, Ryan, thank you so much, dude. And, uh, folks, thanks for listening. Until next time. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please do me a favor. Tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell an acquaintance, share on social media. And if you have not done so yet, please go to whatever podcast platform that you uh, consume this content on and leave a five-star review. And if you have a few moments, a written review helps tremendously. Uh, that helps get us up in the algorithms it also is like a legitimizing force for folks that may come across the podcast and not know very much about it if it's got a bunch of positive reviews and people have taken the time to you know write a few sentences about why it's meaningful or impactful for them that goes a very very long way if you want to keep up with me kind of the same deal as always easiest and quickest way is going to be on instagram that handles just black duck revival or you can always follow what i'm up to over on the website and that's blackduckrevival.com i'm excited here uh in the next few weeks three four weeks uh, i hope to be starting to release some new regular content that will uh inform and titillate uh, the masses so look out for that Uh, keep up with me on social media tell somebody about the podcast we'll see you next time